sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, Welcome, and if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. Now, before we get to the show, I do want to make an announcement, and that is we are changing YDHTY's release schedule to every two weeks rather than the weekly format you have come to know and love. Apologies for giving you two less helpings of YDHTY per month but there are a few projects that I need to work on in the near term and putting out a weekly podcast is just keeping that from happening. So I will be sure to let you all know when those projects surface for public consumption. But in the meantime, bear with me and we'll try to make those two episodes a month extra special. Now that out of the way, last week, Janet Yellen announced that the U.S. government would reach the debt ceiling sooner than anticipated and that the Treasury would be taking extraordinary measures to ensure the country didn't enter default. And if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you will know that my view is that we've been locked in a longstanding game of fiscal Russian roulette every time we hit the debt ceiling, and it's only a matter of time before it blows up in our face. Now, to add a slightly more nuanced view of the issue, I invited Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget back on the show to lay out the numbers, the policy, how we might rectify things, and of course, talk about the 1990s live action rendition of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as one would expect. It turns out that the real problem with the debt is that there are no politically expedient answers. Go figure. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So my neighbors are having work done on their house and my dog's new favorite pastime is sitting in the backyard and barking at them just all day long, will not come in. So this may come off in the recording. You may hear him barking in the background and he just, he refuses to come in, refuses to stop barking. So there's that. So Mark, apologies, listener, apologies. Before we get into the topic too, I, I want to give a plug for your Twitter feed because first off, there's a lot of wonderful information related to the federal budget and how it impacts the economy. I've learned a lot from following you. Secondly, it is probably the most entertaining economically geared Twitter account that I have subscribed to for a long time. Just yesterday, you were talking about how Casey Jones in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action film, the 1990s classic, actually killed the Shredder in cold blood. And and I have to ask you this question. Was this something, was this brought up to you by somebody or did you just like wake up in the middle of the night and be like that son of a bitch? Well, so, so I'd actually forgotten about this scene, but I recently watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with my daughter and yep. Shredder is attacking Splinter and Splinter has the right to defend himself and he throws him off the mm-hmm. roof and that's all that's all good but he lands in a garbage truck and then Casey Jones just kind of casually you know turns the compressor on and and murders Shredder and yeah doesn't even seem to care about it and he has this look on his face like oops like this very casual did the I, I didn't I, I I had to watch the clip again on YouTube I don't know did like the did the Ninja Turtles like high five or anything after that or have any like uh, 
you know, pithy remark, like Shredder got trashed or something to that effect? No, they just moved. He might have said oops or he whistled or something like that. They just moved on. And then all the cops yeah. came. They didn't, even check the, they didn't even check the garbage truck. Now, luckily, they, as we know, spoiler alert, yeah. Shredder does survive thanks to the mutant booze that turns him into a super Shredder. But yeah. so it's attempted murder, I guess, not actual murder. Try, try telling that to a jury, you know, that's like, like he had the intent. So yeah, important things out of the way, Mark, I, as much as I'd like to continue down this road, and I would, trust me, the, the real reason I asked you back on is to talk about the current debate going on around raising the debt ceiling. And I think before we get into that, I want to start off with some national debt 101 for the listener. So if you're listening you probably already have some idea of the mechanics, but we're going to go over it anyway, just in case you don't. So first off, how big is the debt right now? I feel like we have to check in on this every time we speak because it constantly grows. So even the easy questions are hard questions here. And I guess the best way to answer okay. is it depends if you're talking to an economist or to a lawyer. If you're talking to a lawyer, the national debt is $31.4 trillion, And that's exactly as much as we are legally allowed to borrow. But a lot of that debt is money that we actually owe ourselves. It's accounting. I wouldn't say gimmicks, but it's accounting measures. It's not real debt. And if we look at the real debt, the debt that we actually owe the public or the Federal Reserve or other countries, that's about $24.5 trillion. And so by debt we owe to ourselves, that would be Social Security, things like that? Yeah, these are mainly federal trust funds like Social Security, where one part of government owes the money, but another part of the government owns the debt. And so it's net zero for the federal government. Okay. Understood. I think the other thing we ought to clarify too, and this is something I try, I try to clarify whenever we talk about the debt, is it's not the size of the debt, but how that debt is growing relative to GDP. And that's the thing we should be worried about, correct? Uh, that, that's exactly right. This is, the, this is one of those cases where it's the same as a household or a business. If you have very high income or very high wealth, you can carry high debt. If you don't, you can't. And so we like to measure our debt relative to the economy, and we like to look at its trajectory over time. And what's that trajectory looked like over the last, let's call it two decades? Well, it's not pretty. About two decades ago, debt was maybe 35% of the economy, 35 to 40. That was a little bit below where it's been historically. We're actually in a pretty good place. Now it's approaching 100. It's about 97, 98%. We project that within a decade, it'll be something like 115, maybe 120. So it's bad and it's getting worse. I want to jump back to that a little later on, but before we get to that, I want to start with the main issue of the debt ceiling. And I think we've all heard a lot about how the debt ceiling works. I think it's, again, worth explaining one more time. Can you explain what it is and how it works? Well, let me go back in history a little bit, because yeah. when the federal government used to borrow back in the 1800s, for example, they would actually have to go to Congress. The president would have to go to Congress each time and say, hey, could I issue debt for this specific purpose? And that worked when we had a very tiny government that barely did anything unless there was a war. But now we have ongoing expenses and ongoing revenue all the time. And even if we were trying to get them to balance on average, they're so dependent on what's happening in the economy or other things we can't predict that that would be untenable. And so in the early 20th century, we established the debt ceiling, which was a measure for Congress to basically say, you don't have to come back to us for each borrowing instance, but we are going to give you a limit on how much you can borrow total. And once you exceed that limit, 
you do need to come back to us and get us to raise that limit. And that's what the debt limit does. It's basically a cap on how much the United States is allowed to borrow before it has to go back to Congress to get more borrowing authority. And I'll bring this up because this is something we talk about in a lot of episodes. But if you haven't been keeping up, one of the things to keep in mind is that the federal government on the whole was relatively small until the Great Depression. And after that period, it took a much more active role in the economy, took a much more active role in the military. And, and now it's more crucial than ever that the federal government continues to run and run well. Now, one of the things that's been said in this latest run up to what will most likely be a debt ceiling standoff is that where authorizing payment for services already rendered or for purchases already approved. Can you explain that as well? Well, most of the borrowing we're going to do after the debt limit increases is going to be based off of legislation that was passed decades ago. Some of it is going to be passed based off of legislation that was passed weeks ago. Very little of it is probably going to be about new borrowing. So we've already decided this is how much we're going to tax. This is how much we're going to spend. And the net difference between the two is borrowing. If we don't raise the debt limit, all we're saying is that we can't do the things that we already promised we are going to do. And so when Republicans talk about cutting spending and cutting the size of the budget, really what they're doing is they're talking about reversing legislation or reversing commitments that were made a long time ago, correct? Well, in part, either either explicit commitments or in some cases projected but that's the other thing of it all is that when they're talking about spending cuts, they're not really talking about preventing us from getting up to the debt limit. It's too late for that. What they're saying is, hey, we've borrowed a lot to get here. Maybe before we give you an increase in your credit card limit, we should get the spending under better control so that next time it's not going to be as big an increase. That's what they're talking about is changing our future policy around how much we spend. They're not talking so much about how much we tax, but in theory about how much we tax and where. But do they have a point there? Because, again, for the last 20 years, we've been running deficits. For the last 20 years, we've been adding to the debt. It's gotten worse with the financial crisis, gotten worse with the pandemic. Is there a case to be made that we really need to look at our obligations and decide which ones maybe we trim back? Oh, I mean, absolutely. We just talked about how much the debt has grown. Just because we made a decision a month ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago doesn't mean it was the right one. And the fact that our debt is clearly in an unsustainable path means that absolutely we should be looking at our spending commitments going forward. Absolutely, we should be looking at our revenue level. And by the way, I think we have to look really at everything. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about, well, Social Security and Medicare can't be on the table. Those are the two biggest federal government programs. Defense is the third. We need to look at all of those, plus the non-defense budget, plus the welfare spending, plus all the spending we do in the tax code and other ways to raise revenue. We have a big debt problem, and um, Republicans are absolutely right to sound the alarm. And now I know that the CRFB is nonpartisan, but are there particular cuts that the CRFB endorses, or are there particular cuts that you endorse? Yeah, so we, in general, our view is spending and revenue need to be closer in line. There are a few that I think are more sensible and that I, in particular, prefer. One is, and this isn't a cut per se, but we need to put caps on how much we appropriate each year, discretionary spending caps. Right now, the appropriators can basically spend as much as they want. And what we saw is just last year, they increased spending 9%. That's well ahead of running well ahead of inflation. So we need some caps on discretionary spending, either to force cuts or to at least stop the spending growth. Number two, there's so much we can do to lower the cost of 
healthcare and Medicare. And that especially includes places where we know where we are overpaying. For example, we're overpaying for Medicare Advantage plans relative to their value. We're overpaying for certain types of hospital payments. If you see a doctor in a hospital, you pay more than the same exact treatment done in a private clinic. We are overpaying for supplemental plans and called Medigap that is driving up Medicare costs. So we got to focus on Medicare. On top of that, we have an aging population. And so I think we do need to look at various work incentives, including the retirement age. And we need to look at the revenue side of the budget. There's no realistic way we're going to get spending down to its historic levels as more and more people become eligible for our most expensive programs. So we're going to need to raise more revenue. And I have lots of ideas on how to do that as well. But it starts with cutting tax breaks that I think are really distorting behavior. Let's actually get into that because obviously one tool that hasn't been on the table, or at least has been a non-starter, are taxes. And you know, I started the timeline of this conversation 20 years ago because it was the last time the, bu- the budget was balanced. That was a time when the tax rate was higher than it is now. So talk to me about that. How should we change tax policy and what would be the impact there? Well, you know, once in a while we do increase taxes. The Inflation Reduction Act had some tax increases. What it seems like over the last 20 years, mostly we've done, Republicans especially, but both parties, is cut taxes. We cut them in 2001 and 2003. We expanded those tax cuts in 2009, 2010, made them permanent in 2013, expanded them further with new tax cuts in 2017. We keep cutting taxes, even though we're not cutting spending by the same amount or at all. And that's Mm -hmm. a huge contributor to our deficit. Now, what do we do about it? I think that our focus where possible should be a more efficient, more pro-growth tax code. And so I wouldn't first look to tax rates. We may want to raise tax rates, but I would first look to where is the tax code inefficient? And it's really all the tax breaks that we're giving. The largest tax break in in the code is an exclusion of healthcare benefits. And that actually drives up healthcare costs. It's one of the reasons healthcare costs are so expensive in this country is because the tax code encourages it. One of the reasons that housing is so expensive in this country is that the mortgage interest deduction encourages it and encourages people to borrow more for their homes. We still have a deduction for state and local taxes, even though it's capped. We have preferences for city municipal bonds that lead to development of stadiums subsidized by the government. So there's so many areas, these are just some examples, but there's so many tax breaks that we could start by cutting those out. And then if we still need more money, yes, we may need to look to higher rates in some areas. We may want to look to new kinds of taxes, for example, a carbon tax. Those are There's lots of creative ways to raise revenue. But let's start with making our existing tax code more efficient. I noticed you went for tax breaks first before raising the, the income tax rate. Why that? Well, I think you should, as best you can, incentivize the things you want people to do. And so I love raising tax rates because that discourages work and investment. The effect's pretty mm-hmm. small. So at the end of the day, I'd much rather have higher tax rates than more debt. But if I have a choice between reducing someone's incentive to work and reducing a business's incentive to drive up healthcare costs, I'd much rather mm-hmm. reduce the business's incentive to drive up healthcare costs. And so we should start with the efficiencies, get as efficient as possible, and then raise rates. We actually put out a plan last year, just a $7 trillion deficit reduction framework. And what we suggested was comprehensive tax reform that cut a lot of breaks in order to extend existing rates, and then a surtax, a deficit reduction surtax of 4% on corporate income and on high income. And the idea is that surtax would get the deficit reduction, 
But if we ever got back to a reasonably balanced budget, we could get rid of the surtax. Now, there were two things you mentioned that I think people listening might take issue with, and I want you to talk about them. You mentioned the tax deduction on health insurance. You mentioned the tax deduction on interest rates. What would the impact be to the individual in terms of what they're paying out of pocket or what they're seeing in their tax bill versus the impact they'd see collectively against the, the debt? Right. So look, if, if we cut tax breaks and we don't cut taxes elsewhere, the first order effect is people are going to pay more in taxes. We should acknowledge that. They're going to pay more in taxes than otherwise would because they're going to have less tax breaks. But there's a second order effect, which is that over time, healthcare costs are going to grow more slowly. And that means people's wages are going to grow more quickly. Housing costs are going to grow more slowly. That means people's cost of living is going to grow more slowly. And so net after all of that, those people are still going to be paying more, but they're not going to be paying more by nearly as much as the, as the tax increase. And on top of that, they're going to benefit from the deficit reduction because lower deficits means more investment in the economy, which means higher wages. You bring up a good point here too, which is everybody's got to pay a little bit more in order for this to happen. Correct. So it's, that's, that's how I feel. Or maybe not literally, not literally everybody, but I think that all sectors of the economy and society are going to have to contribute to the solution, I think. Yeah, because I, I think that there are a lot of solutions thrown out there that are positioned as if they're harmless and as if they're going to do the job. And I'll pick on the left and the right just to make sure I'm being bipartisan here. But on the left, you have the millionaire's tax, for example. On the right, you have this idea of a fair tax that's recently been circulated around. And it, it seems like both of those try to sell this idea that we're going to be able to resolve our revenue issues without anyone feeling any significant pain. But it's really, it's kind of fool's gold in a way, because ultimately there has to be cuts on top of that. Everybody has to pay a little bit more. Am I, am I right there or am I? I, I think that's right. I think two things. One is a tiny segment of the population, whether it's millionaires or whether it's people committing fraud and abuse is not going to solve the problem. The second is there's no free lunches. But there are discount lunches. There are areas where we can get efficiencies where the gains to society are larger than the losses to the individual. And so that's cutting some of those tax breaks or reducing excessive payments to Medicare where you're really cutting out monopoly profits. Those aren't free lunches either, but those are a really good deal. Insurance primes are going to get a little bit less, but society as a whole is going to be much better off. Is there any merit to the argument that when you look at the wealth disparity in this country, a lot of that wealth is held in assets and that if there was a way to tax unrealized gains or, or tax investments in some other manner that we'd see a lift from that. I think that's right. Well, so one of the most egregious tax breaks, which I didn't mention, is that something called stepped up basis of capital gains at death. The idea here is everybody pays capital gains taxes when they sell their stocks. You, you pay it on the, the amount that your stock has grown. But if you die and pass it on, your heirs get to start over and that tax is avoided forever, right? And so that not that creates this big problem where there's an incentive for people to hoard this wealth and pass it on and just let it continue growing tax-free. Just getting rid of that tax break, for example, by moving to something called carryover basis, where mm -hmm. still they don't pay the tax till they sell it, but they have to calculate as total gain. Just doing that, I think, would make a big difference. Now, we could go a lot further. We could expand inheritance taxes. We could increase the capital gains and dividends tax rates. We could tax. There's a lot we could do, but let's start by cutting the most egregious tax break that's really distorting the tax code 
And by the way, it's also causing people to just hold on to stocks that aren't very good value because they know if they hold them long enough, they can avoid the tax. And so it's bad for the economy. Just to make just to make sure I understand what you're saying there. So if I let's say back in you know 1998, I bought Amazon stock at whatever it was then, like let's call it 100 bucks a share, and I just hold on to that until I die and I pass that on to my kids. They effectively see nothing from that. Is that correct? Or the That's capital right. gains I mean, start over, so they could sell it the next day for what they inherited it for and not see any capital gains at all. That's right. So think about it this way: if you bought it for 100. And it was worth a thousand the day you died. If you sold it the day before, you pay taxes on nine hundred dollars. But if your kid sold the day after, mm-hmm. they pay taxes on nothing, right? And so you basically got to escape nine hundred dollars of gains from that tax just by waiting an extra day after you died to sell it. What is? You know, I I want to jump back to the spending side of things because there are a couple of things you said as well that jumped out. One was you mentioned appropriators, and I don't think I don't, and I'm. And I don't think a lot of people listening understand how money is appropriated in the government. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So broadly speaking, there's two types of government programs. There are mandatory programs. That's about two thirds of the budget. And those are mainly on autopilot. For most of those, they keep spending unless Congress does something actively to stop it. So for example, your Social Security and Medicare benefits, those are paid based on formula. Congress doesn't have to go and say, hey, we want to give you this amount of money. It's whatever cost it costs, and the government spends it. And then there's the other third of the budget that's appropriated. And this covers most of our military spending. It covers K-12 through education, some kinds of infrastructure, a lot of kinds of infrastructure, actually, Department of Homeland Security, State, Interior, Commerce, things you think of as all the federal workers, things that you think of as like those core functions of the government, not the checks they're sending, but the things they're doing on a regular basis. Most of those are discretionary. And those have to be budgeted for every single year. And every single year, people on the House and Senate appropriations committees are supposed to come up with the amount of spending they do for each of those agencies. Now, historically, those were first set in a budget resolution. And so a budget resolution said, you're going to spend this much. And then the appropriators went from there. Several times in our history, in the 1990s, and then again, from about 2012 to 2021, we also had caps. They were multi-year caps that limited how much could be appropriated. The last couple of years, we've had neither. And so what's happened is appropriators basically can do whatever they want. It's a little more complicated, but basically they can spend whatever they want as long as they have the votes. And what we saw most recently is they increased spending by 9%, which is massive just for a single year for the defense and non-defense discretionary programs. And so what I would advocate is, A, we got to start doing the budget resolutions again. We actually need to budget. But B, we need some caps in place not even to cut spending, but just to constrain that growth so that they don't keep increasing it with no limits and so they know what to spend up to. And so these are the individual agencies then increasing their budgets or? It's con- Congress okay. increases the budgets of the agencies effectively. Got it, got it, got it. And, and you bring up a good point, which is the way the budget process should work is it starts off being hashed out in committees and there are I think it's seven independent appropriations bills and so on and so forth. That process just hasn't been followed in for this for most of this century, correct? That's right. The process is broken. It's supposed to start with Congress actually writing a budget that is their plan for what they're going to do over the year. And they almost never follow the plan exactly to the T, but historically they would 
try to follow the plan. So historically, they said, whoa, that budget says defense is X, so we're going to spend X. That budget says we need tax increases worth Y or tax cuts worth Y, so we're going to do Y. That used to be how it worked. And then they would negotiate the details of the plan in the committees, and sometimes they wouldn't get it all. More recently, they either haven't passed these budgets at all, or they've passed them only to give them certain kind of fast track, some fast track opportunities like to pass reconciliation bills. And so that means they're not budgeting. The next step is supposed to be, once they have the number from the budget committee, there's supposed to be 12 appropriations committees, actually, kind of 13. It's confusing now. There's a weird extra one. But basically, 12 appropriations committees that are each supposed to come up with their own bills, subcommittees, and then the full committee puts them together or passes them separately. We haven't done that recently. The best case scenario of what we do recently is we have a gigantic omnibus bill that takes all those appropriations negotiated mainly at the leadership level with the support from the appropriators and passes it. The more common scenario is that we do continuing resolutions where we can't even agree to appropriations. We just continue at last year's level. And the two common scenarios that we shut down the government, that we can't even agree on those continuing resolutions since we have a government shutdown. We've had a few of those over the last decade. And it sounds as if there might not be a ton of oversight in this process. <laughs> is that That's, a fair assessment? You know, I mean, one idea that folks have is, well, what if we made this biennial instead of having to do it every year, do it every other year and have yeah. the officers be oversight? I'm finding that, you know, I used to find that kind of a gimmick because you're just going to wait to the last minute anyway. But I'm finding that more re- appealing recently because it actually is really hard to get the stuff done on time. And having that extra time may allow for more oversight because, yes, it is sorely lacking. What's the politics behind this? Like, I don't, it, is, it doesn't seem like either side really ultimately wants to cut spending or raise taxes because both are unpopular. So am I right there? Or is there, is there any side working to really balance the budget? No, I mean, nobody is seriously working to balance the budget. And as yeah. an aside, I should just say, that's not going to happen. In order to get yeah. balance in 10 years time, you'd have to cut all spending across the board by about a quarter. If you're taking defense and veterans off the table, you got to cut it by about half. If you're also taking social security and Medicare off the table, you got to cut it 85%. Like that is, those things are not happening. So we're not balancing the budget. But the question yeah. is like, is anybody even working towards getting in that direction? And the answer is occasionally, you know, but I think that it's not fun to raise taxes and cut spending. And when they do do it, they prefer to use it to deliver more goodies, right? So Mm. Democrats in 2021, especially, were actually very good about talking about the need for more revenue. Not all of them. They didn't have enough votes to get the big, but, you know, President Biden proposed a lot of tax increases and he had most of his caucus behind it. But they didn't want to use that for deficit reduction. They wanted to use that for more spending, right? And so the, the politics of tax increases and spending cuts are hard enough. And the politics of using those for sort of this abstract thing called deficit reduction instead of this concrete thing calling, I'm going to give you a new kind of benefit are really, really hard, but they're also really, really necessary if we want to have a sustainable fiscal situation. And what are the consequences if we don't address it? Because I think we've been sounding the alarm for years and everybody's been waiting for the other shoe to drop and wondering if there's another shoe. So I think when we have big bursts in deficits, like we saw in 2020 and 2021, the consequence is inflation, like we saw in 2022 and 2023, right? And so, excuse me, 2021, I, I'm, my mind has skipped a year, 2021 and 2022. <laughs> so, so when it's dramatic shifts, you can see inflation. 
But when they're gradual shifts, you don't really see inflation because the Federal Reserve manages that by, you know, adjusting interest rates. And so what we see, I think, in normal times is more just of a gradual erosion of our growth prospects. What we see is every year there's just a little bit more, a little bit less investment in the economy, which leads to just a little bit less increase in wages, which leads to just a little bit less um, speed of growth. And so nobody's going to notice it one year over the next, but it accumulates, right? And so the growth mm. rate being 0.1 or 0.2% slower this year versus next is nothing. But over 10 years, you know, that's that's a couple percentage points. Over 30 years, over 50 years, that starts to be a big difference in our standard of living. The Congressional Budget Office has done some estimates, and basically they found that 30 years out, the difference between a scenario where our debt is rising rapidly and where it is headed towards historic levels is about $10,000 per person of income in 2050. So like in in today's dollars, that's a lot of money. It means that average per person income will be 90,000 instead of 100,000. That's a lot of money, but it's so gradual, we won't see it. There's also this risk that um, eventually the markets stop having faith that we're going to pay back the debt at the same rate and we cause some kind of financial crisis, right? So that we could have that slow moving crisis where things just get a little bit worse each year. But it could be that at some point there's a panic that leads to some kind of big financial crisis. Mm-hmm. That's a fear. The last thing I'll say, I mean, I could kind of, give you many more consequences, but the last obvious one is our interest costs go up. We spend an increasing share of our budget just servicing the debt. By next year, the federal government is going to spend more servicing the debt of the past than investing in kids, everything on kids, whether it's for education, child tax credit, child nutrition. That's going to be less than our interest on the debt. And by 2030, interest is on course to exceed defense. That, that, I mean, that's crazy. What does that say about a country's priorities, that you're spending more to service the promises of the past? Not the promise of the past, the spending of the past and the low taxes of the past than you are to protect the country and invest in the kids in the future. And, and that's just your monthly minimum, too. The service <laughs> Pretty much. Market. That doesn't even pay it down. That's right. Yeah, there, there's, and if you're listening and you're, and that, and, and, you're trying to figure out how to frame this in, in real terms. You, one thing I'll point out, and this is in a, a conversation I had years ago with this uh, economist named Carabo Jackson out of Northwestern, I think it was, but he had done this study that effectively said every 1% increase in funding for education in lower income neighborhoods results in, a, in an equal increase in earnings over that person's lifetime. And when you think the public education system has somebody for maybe 12 years, 13 years, and then that person is working, let's say for 40, the economic impact is huge. So I think I just want to stress for the the people listening that when we underinvest in things like infrastructure, when we underinvest in things like education, that decreases the country's ability to grow over the long term and ultimately to, again, outrun the debt that we've accrued. You know, you, you talked about a crisis of confidence in the dollar and I want to get to the the biggest or most obvious one I see in just a second, but is that realistic? Like, so if there's, if we continue to just move on the same path we're on today, where we continue to pass reconciliation bills, pass omnibus bills, continue to add on to the debt, is it realistic that people will lose confidence in the dollar altogether without some larger calamity, like a natural disaster or financial crisis or something like that? Well, let me start with this. The United States is not going to default on its debt. We print in our own currency. 
if we do, it'll be by it'll be because we did something stupid like breach the mm-hmm. debt limit and couldn't figure out prioritizing payments. We are not going to default because of too much debt. That that never has to be the case for a country like ours. But it could be the case that our debt grows so large that we cause some kind of panic. We actually mm-hmm. saw like a little case study of this last year with the United Kingdom, right, where they were already mm-hmm. facing high inflation and an untenable fiscal situation, and they proposed big tax cuts, and the markets panicked, right? And ultimately, they're okay. They came back from that because they didn't go through with the tax cuts. But markets can panic, right? And what can start is, and what we know about markets is things can move slowly, and then they can move quickly. And so it could be building for a long time that institutional investors and other countries are getting nervous about our ability to repay our debt without trying to inflate it away or otherwise haircut it. And nervous just means they think there's a 5% chance we'll do something to avoid it as opposed to zero. It doesn't mean they think we're not good for the money. It just means they have to think there's a chance we won't be able to. But like they could kind of hold that in until first mover says, you know what, I'm going to need to charge higher interest rates for this. And then there's a panic, right? And that panic causes all the interest rates to go up. And if they go up really rapidly, what that does is it devalues all the existing U.S. debt around the world. Because if I own a bond that's paying 2% and all of a sudden the next day I know I can buy the almost the exact same bond paying 6%, I'm going to want to sell off that 2% bond, right? And that could cause, given that U.S. Treasuries are the backbone of global financial system, that could cause a global financial crisis. Mm, mm. Yeah, and that that brings me to, to part two here, which is, and this is something I've said on this show before, where if the dollar dies, it's a suicide, not a murder. And I think the most obvious one is that we seem to play Russian roulette every time the debt ceiling debate comes up. And it seems like it's only a matter of time before this potentially blows up in our face. So, so if Congress fails to reach an agreement in time, what does that look like? Well, we are already at the debt limit. Right now, the Secretary of Treasury is undergoing what she refers to as extraordinary measures. But I, but I now think of them as actually as ordinary measures because now apparently it's okay to go over the debt limit so long as the Secretary of Treasury has accounting gimmicks to delay it. And so we do this every time now where we play the game that we're, we're in sort of garbage time where they're using accounting gimmicks to extend the timeline. And they will get us to April. And then in April, we'll have these tax payments. And those tax payments are going to get us to June. And then in June, we'll probably have more tax payments. And those will get us, I don't know, to August, maybe July, maybe September. We don't know. But eventually, we're going to run out of these accounting gimmicks. And at that point, if we have not raised or suspended the debt limit for a few days, Treasury maybe can find some ways to delay payments, you know, delay tax refunds, delay contractor payments that aren't due on a specific day. For a few days, maybe they can sort of wiggle timing. But eventually, they're going to have to break some laws. They're either going to have to break the laws that say we are supposed to pay this benefit or this payment to this person on this day, or they're going to have to break the law that says that we need to pay interest on the debt. Both of those are bad, but breaking the law on the interest on the debt is is probably financially like the worst of all the scenarios, because who's going to lend us money if they think that you know our political dysfunction is going to lead us to not pay them back? And so that really mm-hmm. could cause a global financial crisis or some kind of deep recession. And so we really want to avoid that at all costs. And we want to do it by raising the debt limit as soon as possible. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't accompany the debt limit increase by other fiscal reforms. Our debt situation is out of control. And what better time to talk about your future debt situation 
than when you're increasing the limit on your credit card. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very reasonable. We used to do this all the time to accompany debt limit increases with fiscal reforms. But at the end of the day, and before it's too late, we need to raise or suspend the debt limit. There can be no debate and no argument over that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. I have also included a link to Mark's Twitter profile in the show notes, as well as a very interesting budget calculator from the CRFB. Check it out. For additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day, you can also access a link in the show notes to sign up for the weekly email newsletter or go to ydhty.com news. Now, the biggest thing I took away from this episode was that while we like to talk about worst case scenarios with our national debt, the best case scenario is that we enter a slow motion catastrophe where continued disinvestment in education and infrastructure makes the U.S. economy less competitive and stifles growth. This isn't so much a question of our economic future as that of future generations. And it really got me thinking about how many of our policies, especially our fiscal policies, are really geared specifically for older generations. If we look at the largest expenditures in the budget, Social Security and Medicare, these are ones that predominantly benefit the older generations and fund consumption, but don't really see any investment, meaning we're not going to see a return on that in the decades to come. Given that there's really no way to get on the right track fiscally without making cuts in those programs and raising taxes, it doesn't seem like there's any politician interested in re-election who would let that happen. So we're at this familiar impasse where representative democracy meets a seemingly bottomless supply of credit, and it's almost impossible for anyone interested in holding public office not to dip into it. But one ray of hope is the fact that we did manage to balance the budget before in the late 90s. The debt and the deficit weren't nearly as high, but it does indicate we could feasibly get there with the right people in office and the right political will. Either that or we continue playing Russian roulette and that is bound and poorly. Fun stuff. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye-bye.